My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Welcome back, everybody, to It Still Lives. We are here today with a very special guest, Mr. Dylan Harris, and TJ is back with us as well. Hi, Dylan. <laughs> so Dylan is here um, as a visiting researcher, and he is actually holding a storytelling and climate conference here at Foxfire. So we're going to talk to him a little bit today about um, that project and also his larger research work, which is pretty interesting. Um, and has to do with going into several different archives and doing kind of a cross-cultural comparison. So, uh, Dylan, if you just want to start off by introducing yourself. Sure, right. Well, my name is Dylan Harris. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Clark University up in Massachusetts. Um, but I grew up in Mississippi in a small town. Um, and I kind of work between West Virginia and Alaska and then also sort of in Georgia with, with Foxfire here. So. It works a bit all over the place, but again, I study storytelling and kind of how it helps us understand climate change a bit better. And I think you first came here about two years ago? Yeah, it was two years ago. It was, I guess, summer 2017, and I had written to you specifically. Yep. Uh, kind of, I was in this moment where I was like, what What even is storytelling? How do we How do we do that in research? Uh, obviously, lots of people talk about it, but Foxfire's been around for a long time and seems like a good place to start, so that's why I wrote to you originally. And uh, yeah, it's been... Two good years. Yeah. Awesome. Could you just share a little bit more about your dissertation project and how um, the research at the different archives is kind of playing a role in that and what your ultimate goal of your research is? Sure, yeah. Um, for me, I started my research off actually overseas, uh, and that's a long story that we don't necessarily need to get into. The important part is that uh, when I was doing the work, I was in Nepal actually, um, it just kind of felt disingenuine. I wanted to do something back closer to home. Again, I grew up in the South. Uh, Appalachia really isn't where I grew up, but it feels homey to me. I've lived and worked in West Virginia for six years. And, you know, when I started to think about my dissertation work and how I wanted to do it and where I wanted to do it, um, I kind of gravitated towards this region because climate change is happening here. It's very profound here, uh, but people don't talk about it very much. In fact, uh, people struggle to talk about it because it's, you know, quote, too political uh, and yet happening nonetheless. And so when I started to really think about how to do this work. Um, storytelling kept coming up as a way to approach people, as a way to navigate complex politics and to not necessarily bypass politics or manipulate facts, but to just have real conversations about these issues in a way that's approachable and meaningful. And so that's kind of where I started my work. And with archival stuff, um, I realized that you know people's relationship to climate change isn't really based on right now or what happened last summer or a flood that happened a couple years ago it's something that's developed over a long time and so archives are these really useful spaces right where we can access data uh, that goes back hundreds of years and in physical studies of climate change we talk about archives quite a bit but they're really referencing you know ice core data where you can see past atmospheres from millions of years ago um, it's hard to get that sort of data with social science but what's fascinating about Foxfire, for example, is you have you know, roughly 150 years of data uh, in the archives here based on interviews that have been happening with older folks at the time when Foxfire started up until the present. And what you can do is start to suss out from that changes that have happened in the land and people's lives. And maybe they're not explicitly talking about climate change, but if you're looking for it, 
you can see all kinds of proxies for climate change, uh, and I'm happy to talk about that more. But you know, to your point of you know, what's the what's the big plan here? Um, ultimately, I want to find meaningful ways to talk about climate change uh, in a place like northern Georgia, for example, to show folks from their own archive that they've been dealing with it really successfully for the past 150 years, that it's not necessarily anything drastically new, um, and it's nothing to necessarily be opposed to, um, but that, in fact, people around here have been dealing with it really well for a long time. And so finding meaningful ways to engage with, with climate change is sort of the, the long-term goal, because I think, again, Especially in Appalachia, and I mentioned earlier I work in Alaska as well, um, you know, people really struggle to talk about it, and yet it's happening constantly. Um, and so that's kind of my end goal, is just to really start this dialogue of how can we even talk about it and then ideally start to work on it. Um, yeah. I think it was interesting when you first contacted me, um, we were in the process of gathering some new some stuff from the archives for the, the cookbook that we just did. And when you were explaining this to me, the first thing I mentioned to you was, well, I just been reading this stuff in the archive about smokehouses and about people making these comments in the seventies about how they couldn't, they couldn't use smokehouses. They couldn't do the curing using outdoor air anymore because the winters weren't cold enough or right. it just gotten too warm and the bugs were getting in them. And it was, you know, I had never thought about it in those terms until you contacted us. And then as soon as you said that, like a light bulb went off. Like, yeah. There it is. Yeah. Another really, uh, well, a couple of really cool examples from the archives here. In, and again, it's not things you would necessarily look at on first reading, like, oh, climate change. And I guess I should also say that it's still really difficult. I mean, this is the larger problem with studying climate change. It's difficult to understand when it's happening, what's causing it. But again, archives help us get there. And another example... Uh, from this archive is specific, you just mentioned bugs, but uh, different kinds of bugs and pests and how they've changed over time. And so, uh, and especially in the archives here, people talk about their farming practices or when they planted things or when things were harvested and all that's changed quite a bit as well. But specifically people talk about certain bugs and how there's way more bugs now than there used to be. There's different kinds of bugs than there used to be and it makes harvesting incredibly difficult. And so, Yes, the increase in bugs can be due to land use change. You know, maybe some bug was introduced through, you know, logging or something, but it's also a proxy for understanding climate change. Uh, and that, you know, requires a bit more research on my end to dig deeper into which kinds of bugs specifically, but it's a good proxy to start that process. Uh, and another one that's been really fascinating to me is uh, in reading the different kind of dyeing practices of yarn, uh, you know, different sorts of plants are used to create different colors. And over time, the colors have changed. And that's mm. in part because the plants mm -hmm. are maybe not here. They've moved around or the kind of quality of the colors changed because the plants themselves have changed. And again, it would require a bit more research to necessarily link that to climate change. Mm -hmm. But at this stage in my research, these are the types of conversations I'm interested in having. And again, this archive is so rich for finding those sorts of pieces to understand this reality around here. Um, and again, like I said earlier, to point out that folks have been dealing with it really well for the most part. Mm -hmm. It's not you know, the government or something. Right. <laughs> so when you're going into archives, are you looking specifically at oral history collections or are there other types of collections that you're looking at? Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. And so kind of the word I use in my work to understand people's relationship to climate change. So again, I'm not really interested in whether or not someone believes it or is opposed to it. I'm interested in people's relationships. And that process in my mind uh, is more of a consciousness uh, which is maybe a goofy word, but 
basically how people's ideas of this idea of this problem have developed over time. And so looking at oral histories isn't really helpful here. But another thing, and this is you can't not talk about this stuff, is land use patterns. And so looking at land deeds, who owns land, mm-hmm. uh, who owns coal mines in West Virginia, uh, who gets to work there. And so, you know, obviously uh, in recent news, there's a lot of anxiety between, you know, and this is, I think a lot of this is really superficial, between coal miners who perceive their jobs, uh, you know, losing their jobs as a function of environmental regulations. Uh, I, the more I talk to people, the more I, again, that's really superficial, but um, in understanding what I'm calling climate consciousness, having a sense of how those jobs have changed over time has been really helpful. And so to date, uh, what I've kind of come up with with regards to what I'm calling climate consciousness is it's sort of a intersection between uh, energy, you know, folks is kind of, and this is a broad thing, not coal, not just oil, but sort of just the ability to make work uh, progress. And so this is another interesting thing that archives here is seeing how the train coming through town changed everything. So people's perception of progress uh, and then also empire is something I think about quite a bit. So as America sort of grew in the Northeast, the resources they took from Appalachia, and then actually after they moved west to Alaska, how those resources have changed. And all of that kind of combined, in my mind, informs uh, climate consciousness. And so it's not just how's the weather changing or what kind of bugs are here, but again, what sort of land use changes are happening, whose resources are being used, who's uh, been previously dispossessed and now feel angry towards, you know, again, the government, for example, because of environmental regulations, when it has a lot more to do with uh, kind of these historical patterns of power uh, and all these other larger issues. And so it's a long answer to your question. Uh, oral histories are huge, but I, I do kind of focus on lots of different archival materials. Yeah. Well, it's great to hear you're taking such a holistic and interdisciplinary yeah. approach. So how does... Um, you know, your research findings to this date um, compare or contrast with some of the other research you found in other archives? Yeah, I feel like the research here at uh, Foxfire has been so refreshing because it's so um, a, accessible, um, but also well-maintained and organized really well. And it's also easier to understand, for me at least, because it's all more or less from people around here. Uh, versus kind of a state archive in West Virginia, for example, where I've worked. It's from all over the state. Uh, and so you have a, just a lot more to kind of sift through. And so the work here has been really refreshing because it's, again, more accessible. Um, but then again, the types of questions Foxfire students have asked over time have been really helpful. You know, I guess I should say it, an archival, any archival research is a relationship, you know, between me and what I'm reading and what it's telling me and then what I'm learning. And then the questions change and you know, the Foxfire students' questions that I didn't even ask have been really informative to me and has shaped a lot of how I understand issues in this region um, because it's a conversation. And so I feel like all that to say the Foxfire archive has been really refreshing for me because it's so unique and different than other archives I've worked with uh, for all kinds of reasons. But, um, you know, I could go on, but mm-hmm. I love it here. <laughs> Has the you know, the relationships that the students establish with many other contacts and going back with repeat visits, has that information provided useful data for change over time? Is there some sense of like longevity that's marked in those or are you finding that a lot of it is repeated memories? Yeah, I mean, kind of both actually. So I find the repeated memories to be useful on the one hand because it's consistent. And, and in some ways, uh, in research of storytelling, this comes up quite a bit, 
um, you know, it's hard to get the, the same thing multiple times. So when you see repeated memory, it actually just, in my mind, signifies uh, that it really happened. Um, but to the other point of this longevity question, that is another really interesting thing in, about Foxfires that it's not just these one-off sort of uh, interviews, which you know social science researchers uh, tend to do quite often, actually. And I know, kind of in my world, we're working on kind of centering relationships with people and research as opposed to just sort of taking from people. But what I love about Foxfire is that it's a part of the community, it's been a part of the community, it's for the community. And so a student can talk to the same person, it could be multiple different students, different kinds of questions, different memories. Um, and you just learn so much more about that person, the students, this place, uh, you know, Southern Appalachian culture in the process. And so I feel like the repeat questioning has been really uh, unique and helpful for me, uh, for sure. Awesome. Um, either in your work here or in other locations, have you encountered, um, you know, contrasting opinions or kind of, you know, um, different voices that, that conflict? Um, and how are you, how do you manage that either in your research or in groups that you interact directly with? Right. So, uh, again, climate change can be a really divisive topic. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, climate, my research on climate change is, you know, I, I have to defend it a certain way for my committee and things, but it's how do I talk to my, you know, family about climate change, um, and it's difficult. And so, yes, I've encountered all kinds of crazy opinions uh, and ideas, and I guess something that m I hope sets me apart from other researchers who typically deal with climate change is I'm not really interested in blaming people. I'm really interested in how people, or why people feel the way they do. Um, and so when I encounter someone who is kind of upset or has an opinion that may differ from mine, my approach is not to convince them of anything, but just to listen to them deeply. And that's something I've learned from working with storytellers over the past 12 months or so is just really the power of listening. and. Uh, when people air their grievances and people have said their say, then you can start to engage on their level about these issues and, and ultimately come to terms with the fact that we're all kind of talking about the same things and it's just a matter of finding the ways to do that. Um, and so an example actually was here last uh, fall when I was working in the archives. So uh, for those of you who haven't really been here, the archive is housed in a cabin that looks much like the rest of the museum. And so folks kind of just wander in um, <laughs> while you're working. Uh, and I, I tend to not keep the door locked because I feel foolish doing that. So, you know, I'd interact with lots of people just by virtue of sitting there. And uh, a guy walked in, um, you know, an older gentleman who was a retired preacher, and he asked what I was doing. And, of course, I'm careful to not just come out and say, oh, I study climate change. So, you know, environmental change, environmental history. And we kept talking, and it more or less just eventually came out. And... Um, his gut reaction was, you know, that's not real science. Like back in my day, we had the real truth and science did this and that. And, um, you know, the, the whole kind of endeavor of climate change is this poisoned government concept and uh, he's not going to pay for it. And I, and I listened and I think caught him off guard a bit by, to some extent, agreeing with him uh, and saying that, you know, I think the science of climate change is really complicated. And that it's a lot different than other kinds of science, you know. Maybe his kind of science is the kind that you test hypothesis, you have an answer, and you work on more stuff. Climate change is really speculative, and I think that's a difficult thing for folks to understand. And 
in any case, we talked and talked and talked and you know, I explained using the archive, again, what I was saying earlier, well, it's hard to doubt that at least these things have happened because you can read about it. And he's here visiting Fox Fair. He's interested in this archive. So that was a really useful way for me to engage with him. Uh, and at the end of the conversation, he walked away uh, with an understanding that climate change may not be this poison government concept, but that it might just be something that's happening. Uh, it might be accelerated recently because he can even acknowledge that. Um, but to also know that there's ways to deal with it. And, um, you know, it's a, kind of a, it was a small victory for me, I suppose, but a really good example of how this sort of work, in my mind, should go. Yeah, I think um, that's a really amazing example of yeah. kind mm -hmm. of the power of bringing together the social sciences and science. Yeah. Since we like to divide the two, but we forget that we're inherently human. Yeah. Yeah, and everything <laughs> that comes with that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that's a good lead into the next question is, you know, does, does storytelling really provide an opportunity to bring conflicting narratives or contrary groups together? And I, you know, just from what I've heard from you, I think it does, but... Uh, you know, I think so. I'm still working on it myself. I mean, when I started this project, I had a sense of what I thought storytelling might mean. Uh, and in working with different kinds of storytellers from, again, across Appalachia and across Alaska, um, I've learned a lot about what it means to do storytelling, who does it, uh, why it's important. And I'm still kind of working through all these competing definitions in my mind. But, you know, as research goes, you have to sort of do it eventually. And so I've been running these workshops and... Um, you know, it's hard to say just yet how, how useful it's been because it takes time. And I've been following up with people, but uh, in my day-to-day -day experience, it's been honestly very helpful for navigating the politics. Um, you know, storytelling, unlike just presenting facts, right? So um, even, my, even my job as a social scientist to be, is, is to be an expert on climate studies or whatever. And I do give lots of talks and I enjoy that setting. I teach to my students and things, but um, that there's something different between exchanging facts and telling a story. Uh, and to some extent, it's really intuitive. I think we all have a sense of what a story is. But one thing, for example, is um, kind of the intentional casting of doubt in stories. Like you want to be a bit ambiguous or else you're just preaching to someone and no one likes that. And so what I find with climate change, uh, for example, and storytelling around climate change is rather than just telling someone that things are happening, that it's awful and we're all doomed, which doesn't really help anyone, is to sort of throw out a choice for people to make and maybe wrap you know, the, the truth of climate change in a story uh, that gives people ideas and the opportunity to kind of engage with it on their own imaginative terms. And so they're able to kind of digest the science in a way that being told what to do doesn't really work in the, in the same way. You know, I think there's different ways to interact with different people, but so far, so interesting. You know, I think it's been helpful. Um, again, the jury's still out quite a bit, and this is sort of ongoing work, so I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Please do. Please do. It's fascinating work. Um, what, is your, um, what is your hope for the event tomorrow? Yeah. As well as sort of where it fits into the... So this is the second of three events. Yeah. The first event took place in West, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Our events happening tomorrow here at Foxfire. Mm -hmm. The third event will be happening in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what like what do you hope for tomorrow? Like what do you hope to? Yeah, so my my uh, timeline got a little wobbly in some sense because the original plan was to do West Virginia, Alaska, then Foxfire, uh, and the idea with with doing Foxfire last is I wanted to have a longer event and to bring folks from Alaska and Appalachia together to have these conversations 
so in West Virginia, it was mostly West Virginia focused. So West Virginia storytellers, scientists from across the state, and that was that. And it was a much shorter sort of one day event. I'm doing the one here tomorrow and I have uh, storytellers coming from the Arctic. Um, I have storytellers coming from Appalachia and a few scientists from around this region in particular. Um, and then I'll obviously be there uh, kind of as both a scientist and a storyteller. Um, and my hope is to more or less just encourage interesting conversation. I want to see what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really interested in my work being a bit more experimental and playful. I think that that's really crucial when we study climate change because it's so sad, you know? Yeah. Um, and so taking this opportunity to bring different voices together to play with storytelling, uh, and that's not to say that we're not taking climate change seriously, but we're just dealing with it differently. Um, and so my hope tomorrow is that folks can come here, listen to some cool stories, maybe tell their own, and walk away from the event having a different sense of their understanding of climate change. If they're already kind of on board, great. Uh, but in fact, I really love working with folks who are opposed or hate it or have kind of mixed feelings about it because those are the people who, uh, I don't necessarily again want to change their minds. That's not really my plan. Um, I think others out there are into that. But my, my job is to just sort of create space for dialogue so that hopefully people's sort of relationship to climate change, um, I guess, does change, but mm. not necessarily in a way that I hope. I just hope. I'm excited in possibilities at the mm -hmm. end of the day. And so the one in Alaska, I'll go back to you, and that's going to be a bit more Alaska-focused, and it's going to be based in the southeast. And I guess I should say, too, that each one of these events has used different approaches to storytelling. And so the one here is going to have mostly uh, native storytelling um, with a few sort of representatives of Southern Appalachian storytelling, which kind of spans uh, different approaches. Uh, in West Virginia, my focus was much more on folklore. Mm -hmm. uh, Whereas in Southeast Alaska, it's going to be much more on personal storytelling. So kind of people, maybe people are familiar with the moth, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of in the abstract, my work on climate change storytelling is to understand how different kinds of storytelling bring up different ways of thinking about climate change. And so a personal story about climate change may be, okay, my backyard has a tree. It's changed over the past few years, and this is... Uh, that and that's a personal story about climate change and maybe someone can relate to that maybe they can't I'm really interested in collective imagination and kind of folklore and um, native telling as a way to address something like climate change being so large for example but you know I'm interested in all of it um, so my hope for tomorrow again long story short it's just a fun event where I can have folks come together and learn a little bit mm -hmm. uh, from one another that's another important part I, I'm I, don't want to just talk at people. You know, right. I want people to participate. That's great. Sounds awesome. Um, so you've already you've already shared one really, I thought, incredible story with us. Um, but do you have any more stories of like really impactful moments you've experienced on this journey, or something that stands out to you? Yeah. Um, well, there's so many, but I guess I'll just land on one for the sake of timing here. Um, I was working with uh, an environmental justice worker in West Virginia who lives in the north. Well, he kind of lives in Charleston, I suppose, but he lives in a few places. But he's um, he's been doing this work for a long time, and you know, climate change has been more of a recent issue he's focused on. And, uh, and we were, you know, having um, we were talking at his house one night. He has a cabin, 
and uh, just about my work in general. And he stopped me in the middle of my, you know, trying to explain myself, my research. And you know, as academics, we tend to get uh, convoluted. And uh, so I'm thankful <laughs> for when folks just stop me. What? No. And, and uh, he uh, just sort of stopped me and was like, you know, let me let me get this right. So he sort of reflected back all the things I had said to him in a much clearer way. And um, and he just stopped and said, you know, your work is just so profoundly basic. And sort of in like millennial speak, basic is yeah. bad. And I yeah. was like, man, ouch. But what he really meant was that storytelling is such an innate part of the human experience that of course it makes sense to address something like climate change or any crisis through something so profoundly simple. Uh, and that a lot of the anxiety around climate change or any crisis, you know, I've talked a lot about opioids and the relationship between opioids and climate change actually in West Virginia has just been a kind of side project, but the kind of connective threat is hopelessness. Uh, people feel really disarmed, sad, uh, angry, these really basic human emotions and storytelling works there, you know? And so it was a really interesting conversation with this person who really broke down my research in a way that I was previously incapable of apparently uh, and just understanding that these issues that seem so large, and, and they are, I mean, climate change is large, but really rests on our capacity to get in touch with our basic emotions, you know, and storytelling is is that, you know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's making sense of the world. And when it doesn't make sense, when climate change doesn't make sense, we need to make sense of the world. And so we tell stories and it's, it's that simple, you know, so I think that was one of my favorite moments from this past year because it just really put my own work in perspective in a way that, again, I was just incapable of, apparently. Um, but I haven't forgotten it, and I'm really appreciative for that moment. Great. Do you have any other questions, Stephen? I don't have any questions, but just the, on the whole storytelling thing, when you when you interviewed me last time you were here, we talked. We had that whole conversation about mm -hmm. it, it's it's one of the the narrative impulse is probably one of the more human. I mean, aside from like this, the basics of <laughs> going back to that word of like drinking and eating and right. reproduction and all that, the narrative impulse is probably one of the most human things there is that we share, right. all of us. And framing something that is so big and oftentimes confusing, and there's conflicting news and there's conflicting information, uh, but really coming at it from a standpoint of, you know, observable fact things that I have experienced as an right. individual and I've seen, and then communicating those things that I've seen in a way, in a narrative, I think that that is probably, I don't wanna say, I don't like absolutes. I don't wanna say that's the only way that the larger population can make sense of something like this, but I feel like it's, it's probably one of the few ways yeah. that everybody can come to terms with something that's so large and full of variables and full of all sorts of different things acting on it and science and oh, it's just yeah. a, it's like a web yeah right but if we could just sit down like oh well you know when i was younger we had it snowed you know a dozen times every winter and now we only get like four and it's been like that for a decade now right and sure is hotter than it used to be than i remember it and my grandmother remembers when it rained all the time. Right. And so things are different things <laughs> over, are certainly you know, over different. time, you know? Yeah. And, you know, just to add to that really quickly, our kind of observed changes in our lifetimes down in the lower 48 are, are one thing. And, you know, it's 
more or less different different places but mm -hmm. when you're in arctic alaska where mm -hmm. i was in april for example you can see things like yeah. uh, when i was there it was like 62 degrees mm -hmm. in april it's still supposed to be basically frozen mm -hmm. you know the ground was melting people were having a hard time driving and you could already see sort of the edge of sea ice out in the arctic ocean there and you're not supposed to be able to see that till September, right. you know, and so it's incredibly visceral there, uh, and yet still very complicated. Mm -hmm. Even there, it's not that folks necessarily are opposed, but it's difficult to talk about it because folks' income comes right. from that's right, oil, and, oil production, mm -hmm. that's right. and uh, and so you mentioned a web. It's a giant web, and humans, uh, we don't like to feel ambiguous or uncomfortable. Um, I think, again, we, we strive to make sense of the world around us. I mean, that's kind of our, like you said, kind of our operating system. And beyond science and fact and all these other things, which are all crucial, and we need them and they help us orient our realities, at the end of the day, we just tell stories to ourselves. Uh, and I think going back to that sort of basic molecule of social existence is where we need to get to with regards to uh, maybe not even disentangling this web, but just learning how to live in it. It makes for sense starters. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's so complicated. Yep. So when is your book coming out? <laughs> God, I wish I could say the answer to that question, but um, just you know, as long as it'll come out someday, because I really yeah. think a lot of people are going to find this fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'll keep you posted. I have some, uh, you know, articles coming out. <laughs> so if you want to read up on articles in the meantime, let me know. Yeah, sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. This was this was really wonderful. Yeah, so, thank you. Looking Appreciate forward it. to tomorrow and hearing how it goes. Cool. So, yeah. thank, thank you, guys. You. Have a good one. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. <laughs>